Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Every single person is an individual and to tap into that person's greatness, you have to treat that person like an individual. Welcome to the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here is your host, your guide, your shining beacon of liberty, Mark Clare. Well, hey there, Liberty Lemons. Welcome on back to another edition of Lions of Liberty. As always, your home for great conversations about the ideas of liberty. And I've got another compelling one coming for you here today in this, the 232nd episode of this program. If you've been playing along at home, you'll know by now that that means you can find today's show notes featuring links to everything we discuss over at lionsofliberty.com slash 232. Today's show is sponsored by Health Excellence Select, who have put together the ultimate free market solution for your healthcare needs. To learn more, head over to lionsofliberty.com slash health. My guest today is the vice chairman of the Libertarian Party. He's the creator of the Vora Method, an individualized, hands-on approach to education, as well as the principal of the Vora Academy based on that very method. He is the host of the Libertarians Working For You radio show and podcast, and he is currently a Libertarian candidate for U.S. Senate out of Maryland. I am very pleased to welcome Mr. Arvin Vora. Arvin, are you ready to roar? Absolutely. All right. Now, Arvin, you're involved in so much for the Liberty Movement, as I mentioned there at the top of the show. So uh, first, I want to get to know how you kind of got involved in all this stuff in the first place. What first interested you in the ideas of Liberty? If for me, it was something that happened very early. You know, I saw that there were two parties, both set on making government just bigger and more intrusive. And I wanted that to be reversed. I wanted to make government smaller and less intrusive. And that really brought me to the Libertarian Party when I find, found that there was a party that was actually trying to cut government, that was actually trying to dismantle these federal departments, that was actually trying to give us more freedom. I was pretty much sold. All right. Well, I mean, how, how did you take that, that interest in the ideas of liberty, that, that seeing that there was a third way out there, more so than what was represented by the Democrats and the Republicans, and what made you translate that into action, into getting involved with the Libertarian Party and, and getting involved with politics? For for many years, I actually didn't do very much. I would welcome I would to the vote club. Libertarian. I sat on the sidelines for a solid decade. So, <laughs> I mean, at, at first, I would vote Libertarian. You know, somebody would ask, I would tell them that I was a Libertarian or that was my political view. But I didn't really do that much because I didn't realize how much could be done. You know, I'm not the type of person that wants to put a lot of energy into something that has no hope of succeeding. But as I learned more about business, I learned more about politics, I realized that the Libertarian Party and the Libertarian Movement was poised for one of the biggest political and economic opportunities that America has seen probably in a hundred years, if not more. And so I wanted to be a part of that. And was it the Libertarian Party that you first got involved with or did you dabble with sort of uh, you know, other methods of getting involved in politics or did you see you see the target immediately and say that that's the spot, that's the hub for the ideas of liberty, that's where I'm going to focus my efforts? 
It, it, the Libertarian Party was the first thing that I heard about. I did get involved sort of tangentially learning about other organizations. But for me, I wanted to be part of something that was about political effect, that was about direct political action. I wasn't really, you know, and why I have all the respect in the world for those who feel differently. For me, this wasn't uh, just a t- time where I wanted to focus on philosophical ideas. I really wanted to get into the fray. And to me, the Libertarian Party was the way to do that. Sure. And I don't think they're necessarily separate things. I mean, I think you're actually a great example of that because I, I see a lot of your posts on Facebook. Uh, highly recommend following Arvin Vor on Facebook, by the way. And and you do a lot of breaking down of current issues mm-hmm. and, and things that can be actionable in the political realm. But you do so through that filter of the philosophy of liberty. And you're able mm-hmm. to do so in a way without really pounding it over anybody's head. But, you know, if you know what you're looking for, like I do, you can see that philosophy inserted there in everywhere you go. <laughs> uh, you know, at, at the beginning, when you're first exploring the ideas of liberty, you're going to have a lot of that philosophical awakening where you start to realize that, yeah, a human being can be greater, more powerful, more self-actualized or more actualized than, than people would have us believe. And so there is that kind of personal aspect. You know, you start thinking about like these great writers like Locke, you know, Immanuel Kant, all these folk, and they start to turn your brain on. And, and even today, you know, I, I do think that that type of thinking has a big influence on me and how I think about, you know, when I say we need to, for example, get rid of the Department of Education, that is being informed by a philosophical standpoint, but also a very utilitarian standpoint that says, you know, if we get rid of it, we're going to have some pretty substantial benefits that we're all going to see. Yeah, and I've always had the, well, I can't say I've always had the mindset. It's developed over the years, but I'm of the mindset now that if you have the right philosophy, and I do believe the right philosophy does lead you to the ideas of liberty, that almost becomes merged with the utilitarian side. Because if you're mm-hmm. following the right philosophy, we are going to see better results for humanity. We are going to see better tangential, I guess, results that we can maybe even drop some cool graphs and charts to show people. But at the end of the day, the philosophy was really the basis for getting there in the first place. Absolutely. So what inspired, I actually want to talk to you about your position in the Libertarian Party right sure. now as, as the vice chair, because because it's really an interesting position. I think uh, you share qualities with the chairman, Nicholas Sawark, and, and the way mm-hmm. that you're able to approach communicating with people and communicating the ideas of liberty. And I think for a position like that within the LP, in many ways, it's, it's more, it's not so much about hurting people towards a specific subset of philosophy. I mean, you certainly have your own, but it's really more about hurting all these people with very similar thoughts about how things should go, even if there are many philosophical disagreements within that, and mm-hmm. kind of getting them to focus and work together for a common goal. So do you have any thoughts on why you're someone that's able to sort of get people to do that in a way, or at least, you know, you're, you're able to maintain a very strong philosophical stance while still being seen as someone who can unite people within the party. I mean, you and Nicholas Sarwark are two people I have never seen one single negative word said about. Maybe in private there's some stuff I don't know, but for the most part, you guys just seem to really present a, a positive vision of a libertarian party, one which many people see is very divided at times. I, I think one one big part of that is that Certainly, Nick and I. You know, I also try to be the same way. We're we're very much geared towards action, specific actions. So, for example, no matter what your personal view on, you know, the 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 exact way that you arrive at a libertarian position, uh, whether it's from a social contract mindset or whether it's from a self ownership mind or however you however you arrive there, we can all agree that we should have a certain number of posts per day on our Facebook page. You know, we can all agree, no matter how you arrive there, that we should work to get rid of the export-import bank. You know, we can all agree on – when it comes down to action, 
we can all agree on pretty much everything. You know, we can all agree that we should have a good website. We can all agree on that. And so, you know, Nick and I have have you know, and you know, not not to speak too much for Nick, but but I but I've seen him really focus on trying to get everybody united behind the actions that we're all going to agree on uh, rather than getting sidetracked by, by sort of debates and, and things that, that while are entertaining aren't necessarily as actionable. Sure. I mean, one example is that is just, it's just like the action of going and getting ballot access, getting those petitions. It doesn't really matter if you don't like the top of the ticket or if you don't like a certain candidate. Every libertarian that's involved in the Libertarian Party anyway probably agrees that libertarians <laughs> should get that ballot access. So, I mean, that, that's the kind of thing where you can say, all right, who cares? We can we can go to the bar after we go petitioning and, and discuss our philosophy. But for these three hours that we're out here, we're all agree we're going to try to get these petitions and get these signatures and, and help the party grow and help these ideas get out there. And then we can discuss what those ideas may be. Absolutely. Now, Arvin, you're one of those people that has decided to take that extra step and actually run for office yourself. So why don't you just tell us a little bit about what inspired your current campaign for U.S. Senate and a little bit about you know what your campaign is going to specifically focus on and maybe t- discuss your opponents that are in this race. Sure, absolutely. Uh, the, if you want to see the, the major difference between my campaign and the other campaigns, it's really that I'm focusing on cutting government. And I want to cut a lot of government. I mean, to me, we are not slightly too large in the area of government. I think we are massively too large. So there's huge departments that I think we would be just better off without. I've mentioned education. I think our military can be humongously downsized. I think we can take a 60% cut on that right away. Uh, when it comes to some of these other areas like uh, you know, the FDA, I, that's, again, that's something that I think that we're going to be better off without because we're going to have better access to medicine. We're not going to have our food supply distor- distorted. We're going to have uh, you know, more environmental protection, all that kind of stuff. So, so that's going to be the, the big difference. You know, in, in terms of what inspired me to run specifically, a lot of that's strategic. You, know, you realize that every single candidate who runs for a statewide office or, or runs, runs for Congress or even runs for state legislator, even runs for, for county council, is going to be bringing just tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars of free media coverage to the ideas of liberty. That's the least that's going to happen. You know, When there's an opportunity and one of our candidates wins, then they can actually start cutting government directly. So to me, it's a, it's a win-win. I think every single person in the libertarian movement should strongly consider doing so. And you've got what I think is a a very succinct pledge on your website. Now, you have a whole whole host of campaign positions that that people can go through and get more detail on, but you have a very specific set of things that you've pledged to do as a senator. And I just want to kind of go down a few of them because I know a lot of these things will be things that libertarians hear and think are wonderful. Well, some of them will be things that non-libertarians hear and go, oh, I don't know about that. (laughs) So I want to try to approach this from the perspective of both, you know, both the libertarian and both the someone who might be interested in the ideas, but maybe a little iffy about some of the specifics. So let's start with the big one. And that's something you just mentioned is that you think we can take 60% of the military spending down tomorrow with, with no ill effects Mm -hmm. Um, on your, on your pledge here. It says you want to shut down foreign military bases and U S involvement in foreign civil wars and bring our troops home. Uh, Mm -hmm. Very similar to to Ron Paul's message during his presidential runs, which inspired so many into political activism as well. So uh, what would you say to people that say, you know, Arvin, I can agree. The military is a bit overextended. But 60% taking all the bases away? I mean, can we really cut it that drastically without harming our national security? Uh, That's a perfectly valid question. Uh, Let me take it from two different perspectives. 
one, there's the perspective of safety. You know, what's going to make us safer? Now, I live over here in Maryland, and I'll tell you one thing. Even here in Annapolis, maybe an hour's drive from D.C., Annapolis doesn't want D.C. micromanaging its affairs. And if D.C. started to really micromanage Annapolis affairs, there'd be rioting. In the same way, if D.C. goes and tries to manage the affairs in an entirely other country, one that has a different language and culture, realistically, they're going to like it even less. When D.C. takes it to the next level and starts using violence, violence that has all these civilian casualties, it's actually feeding into the opposition towards America. It's actually feeding into terrorism. You know, we saw at the Libertarian National Convention 2016, uh, the Libertarian, the, the delegates, gave Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump an outreach award, saying that they were so hated <laughs> that they were helping us recruit more members. But the thing is, that's what we're doing right now. That's what the U.S. government is doing right now for ISIS. They're making the U.S. so hated that people are flocking to ISIS. And if anyone does government even less competently than the U.S. is ISIS, I mean, like, their actual governing is worse. I mean, it's incompetent. But it's we're doing it so poorly. We're, we're antagonizing people so badly that we're actually creating our own enemies. And that, to me, is something that we need to stop doing. And so part of it is, yeah, I believe that we should pull people, people out of the military. But then there's a second half of that. And that's the half that I think that people often overlook, which is that we're not replacing uh, war with nothing. We want to replace war with trade. Let me give an example. Let's say that we get rid of all the sanctions between the United States and Iran. Now, an Iranian company that wants to do business with the United States is going to have to learn our culture. It's going to have to learn to advertise to us. Their staff writers, their graphic designers will have to learn about our culture. That's our culture spreading. And I fundamentally believe that the ideas of liberal democracy are simply better than the ideas of a, of a restricted theocracy. And I do believe that that is going to actually get the results that people are trying to get with violence. We're actually going to get those results with superior ideas. And so I think replacing war with trade, commerce, and the necessary sharing of, of ideas will give us the results that we're looking for when it comes to military. So whereas so many people see our, our foreign intervention and the strength of our military being projected around the world, they see that as an asset to protect us. You actually see it from the opposite view that that's actually causing more harm. It's causing more mm -hmm. tension, more anger towards us. And thereby, by that logic, if you drastically cut it, it actually will make us safer. Do you, do you think that ultimately, I mean... What level would you want to cut the military to ultimately? Obviously, your 60% your is really just saying, look, there's at least this much we know we can cut out. I mean, do you see a legitimate role for, for military in the United States for, say, defensive purposes if it is actually restrained to that? I mean, honestly, I think that by the time when people really start thinking about it, they're going to see that there's much better alternatives than having a big, huge standing army. I think that having such a large, always ready standing military – as we start to use tools that make more sense, you know, as we start to rely on trade instead of wars, we start to use these other tools, I do think it's just going to be obsolete. I mean, I think the idea is obsolete already, but, you know, it's just not, not realized. So as a, as a simple answer to the question, no, I, I don't think that we need, certainly not a military anywhere near this size, and I'm not at all convinced that we need a military at all. We certainly don't. I certainly don't think we need a standing army the way we have.
Uh, another kind of target you set in your little pledge is that, uh, you know, you said you wanted to cut all spending to 1992 levels and abolish the federal income tax. So mm-hmm. I, I'm curious why you specifically chose that year, 1992. What's the significance about the the, the, spent, the level of government spending at that time that you, you set that as a target? If you if you cut spending to that level, that's and that's the most conservative. I mean, other people say 1998 is actually fine, but if you cut it to 1992 levels, we can maintain that level of spending with zero income tax. And so that's why I picked that date. Now, I would prefer to as, to cut it to 1792. I mean, I would prefer to cut <laughs> right. it a lot further, but you know, even 1992. That's I mean, that's you know a time when we had roads and internet and school. I mean, we had a lot of things then. And I think it's perfectly that most people won't see that number as as so scary. It's it's a familiar time. And when you imagine that you can still have that infrastructure, you know, that level of infra- infrastructure provided by the government, but like all of your own money kept as in- income tax, so that we can start building our own infrastructure, not need them even involved in that at all. Uh, you know, I think that's going to be something that once people really understand the huge benefits of that, are really going to try to are going to start to come around to that idea. This is something that a lot of people that I, I interact with, not really in libertarian circles, but just a kind of general political dialogue, most people don't realize that there is funding besides the income tax. That you know, most <laughs> people, if you suggest ending the IRS, they'll automatically say, "Wait, but how will we? How will the government get any money at all?" But you're saying we can cut the the income tax right now, end it all, end all of that funding, and you still have the same funding for the government that you had in 1992. So, can you just mm-hmm. describe for people that don't really understand this all the various other ways that the government currently takes in revenue that while we probably disagree with those methods as well, uh, none of them are nearly as intrusive and as tyrannical as the income taxes. Yeah, I, I mean, there's ma- many different ways. There's excise taxes, tariff sales taxes. I mean, personally, I think that most of those can go because if you look at what the federal government specifically does, very little of it is in any way useful. I mean, it's, you know, some people say like, you know, I I like the fact that my trash is picked up, but the federal government doesn't arrange that. Either your neighborhood does it it privately or or your county does it. So when you you look at what the federal government is actually doing, so little of it is useful, so much of it's harmful that, you know, I think we can cut it a lot more than that. But yeah, there's there's a, a many, many different sources. There could be even additional sources. As a simple example, you know, I've heard people suggest that, that uh, in terms of immigration, one simple process would be instead of having people who are immigrating pay huge like lawyer fees and all these other type of fees and have businesses pay these high fees to get to higher skilled workers to just, you know, turn it into like some sort of an open market. You know, that could be another easy way to raise revenue. But to, to be totally open on that, I don't think that raising revenue is actually good. I think that the less revenue the government has, the less damage it can do. That if we defund the war on drugs, if we defund the Department of Education, if we defund the FDA, we're going to be better off if they just have less money. If they just go broke, that would be fantastic. Yeah, there does seem to be a line of thinking among a certain section of the electorate that all government revenue is good because it's going to the government and the government's working for us. And it, sometimes I really have to hold back because I'll get into a conversation and say about marijuana legalization and I'll have someone agreeing with me and they'll say something like, and it's really great because, because look at Colorado, they're getting all this extra revenue for it. And I, I, have, to, I have to stop and hold myself back for a minute because I don't want to, you know, I'm already agreeing with this person on, on a very important issue. So I don't want to just jump down their throats about the revenue. But all I'm thinking is, oh man, but what are they going to do with that revenue? <laughs> what, what, what bad thing are they? 
they going to? What what regulation are they going to try to enforce? Uh, and maybe it'll go to something innocuous like a school or something that maybe I don't agree with that funding, but it's not the end of the world. But it might go to really some other harmful things that I might not really be able to think about uh, right now. So every every little bit of funding has an effect, an unseen effect that we're not going to see on the surface. Mm-hmm. One more issue on your on your pledge I want to discuss is uh, something that is obviously near and dear to yourself because it, it relates to your career outside of politics, and uh, <laughs> that's eliminating the Department of Education. I think this is another area that people just make assumptions that it is, was, and always has been, that we must have the Department of Education because, my God, uh, what would happen if we didn't have the federal government sending sending money to our schools and funding our schools? Mm-hmm. My God, we have so many poor schools now. What would happen if the federal government wasn't there to help with them? So what's your take on that? Obviously, I know your take on it, but what's your take on that when you discuss that with, with people who make that presumption, that presumption that the Department of Education has always been and is, is completely necessary? Well, the first I'd point out just the history of it. You know, it was passed in the Carter administration. Reagan tried to get rid of it. You know, he wasn't successful in that, unfortunately. But the idea of getting rid of the Department of Education is not new. It's a very small percentage of the funding. I mean, most of the funding for public schools comes from the state. But that said, you know, I, you know there's, there's this strain of thought that, that I don't think that people have fully appreciated, which is that in the modern era, we don't really need – any, in my opinion, any public funding for schools at all because we have the following situations. One, we have free education on the internet uh, set up in basically any different format you want to. We have low-cost education, you know, you know, private programs like Kumon and all that that are very low-cost. You know, we have high-cost programs too if, if, if that's something that you prefer. Uh, we have all that kind of stuff that's happening now that the free market has provided. So to me, the even idea, the existence of a public school is just – an anachronism. It has no, it, to me, it has no place in any kind of serious discussion on the future of education. So, so that that to me is, is really an important part. So, as as, as on a as a federal candidate, of course, I'm focusing on eliminating the Department of Education, but I would also strongly encourage any state candidates to work on eliminating their state level departments of education, any county in, involvement in education. And a really nice place to start is by starting by just getting rid of any of the truancy laws, which are what kind of keeps this whole ridiculous system afloat. Sure. I mean, truancy laws being the idea that students must attend their public school or that mm-hmm. parents must send their student to school or else. <laughs> I guess. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, Arvin, h- how does this relate to what you've done in your career here? Now, you've developed something called the Vora Method. So why don't you just start by describing what that is, how you came up with it, and, and how that helps people with their education? Sure. You know, to, to me, as, as someone who has a very deep individualistic philosophy, you know, that's something that's, that I also apply to education. To me, any two students are different, and they should have – should, should have their needs addressed separately. And so for the many of the first years of my business, I worked only on private tutoring, one-on-one tutoring. I felt that was the only way to give what I consider to be a good education. After the 2008 recession, you know, that became very complicated. So I I started to experiment with this idea that says, listen, what if we took what if I took all the things that I do in tutoring, turned it into small little modular worksheets that I could then give to students as needed. You know, if somebody had difficulty with addition, I could give them a worksheet about addition. And so from that core, you know, we built that up and, you know, it's this huge and elaborate curriculum now that has worksheets and video, you know, all kinds of other things into it. But really at the core is this idea that exists in private education is so lacking in public education, which says that 
every single person is an individual and to tap into that person's greatness, you have to treat that person like an individual. You know, that's one of the big reasons that we oppose Common Core, both as a business and politically, is because it's just a bad idea. Trying to turn everybody into the same type of person is just not even a good way to educate. It's, it's, it's not even economically sound. You know, most people agree that economic growth comes from division of labor, and division of labor to some extent is going to require varied and diverse education, not uniformative education. So, uh, so that, that's really where, the, where that comes from. That's really how it ties in uh, in, in many ways to what, the work that I do politically. I mean, it's very similar to the political philosophy that you hold. It's you, you are trying to look at people as individuals and, and apply education to them based on what they are as individuals. And that's really what libertarians are putting forward as a philosophy, as a political philosophy, that people are individuals and those individuals have rights. And that's where our focus should be when it comes to, to politics, just as that's where the focus should be for you when it comes to education. Mm-hmm. Well, Arvin, those words certainly speak true, and they apply in many areas of life, not just education. In fact, we can apply them to the healthcare industry, where a one-size-fits-all package doesn't work either. So I'm going to just take a minute out now to tell my listeners how they can better have their healthcare needs met by our sponsors, Health Excellence Select. Now, I'm a freelancer, and I purchased my own health insurance, and I was hit by some serious sticker shock after the implementation of Obamacare. My premiums and deductibles were skyrocketing. And as someone who keeps myself pretty healthy, I knew that I was getting a raw deal for a product I simply didn't want. This caused me to seek an alternative, and I found an amazing alternative in the form of health sharing. A killer concept where healthy individuals agree to share their medical costs. That's right. It's a voluntary free market system for paying for your health care that also, thanks to an exemption, covers the Obamacare mandate. Our friends at Health Excellence Select have kicked it up a notch by creating a full-service package to handle all of your health care needs. Trust me, I'm not just a proponent of health sharing. I'm also a client. This has been one of the greatest things I've ever done to leave the Obamacare system in favor of what our friends at Health Excellence Select are doing. To learn more, head over to lionsofliberty.com slash health. And don't hesitate to give my man Jeff Cantor a call at 440-283-684. Four, nine. Be sure to mention Lions of Liberty. Now, Arvin, as I mentioned, you, uh, you, I think you're very eloquent when it comes to you know filtering current events through the ideas of liberty. Like I said, I've been following you on Facebook. You've had a lot of good – I don't want to use the term rant because the, the term rant, <laughs> it almost makes it sound like it's uh, disjointed and all over the place. But your statements that you put out there are, are anything but disjointed. They're all very coherent. And, and as I mentioned, you seem to be able to insert that philosophy of liberty into current affairs without beating it over your head, without saying, you know – Abolish the government, even if that might be what you ultimately want to do. So mm-hmm. wh- why don't you just hit on a couple topics that you've written about recently? I- I'm just going to tee you up and-, and let you go for a minute or two. So w- one one rant, non-rant, however you want to call it, <laughs> uh, that you did recently was was about Brexit and and really about, about a lot of the, the hysteria that went on uh, shortly after it. Everybody seemed to think the world was going to end, the world markets are going to crash, and uh, Europe is going to collapse into war and anarchy. So what what is your take on the Brexit and really the Response to a lot of the hyperbole in regards to it. To me, Brexit is just it's on the on one level, it's just a simple thing. You know, you're you're part of a cartel. Like, you know, Britain was part of the EU cartel. They were able to trade with other EU countries, but they weren't really able to trade or, or import labor from anywhere else. You know, you had folks like Dyson who was who was saying that it's 
he's like he was basically saying that I I can't run this company, I can't run this amazing innovative company if I can't hire any engineers from anywhere outside of the EU. That's you know we're not getting the perspective, that diversity of thought with it. So so on one side, it's it's really Britain rejoining a free market. People are saying that they left the EU free market, but the EU wasn't a free market. It was the most closed market that, you know, one of the most closed markets that, that we've really had in, in recent history. So there's that. But there's this second thing that I think is so important, which is we're moving, in my view, towards a situation where countries will start thinking like companies. They're going to try to attract citizens. They're going to try to attract businesses. They're going to think from that mindset. And for those who are nervous about that, I want to ask you this. Who gets treated better? A you know lower middle class or even poor person at you know McDonald's or Burger King or Subway? Who's treated better, that person or an extremely wealthy, extremely upper class person at the DMV, or an extremely wealthy person going to get a simple business license? You see that that even when even when it comes to the you know the people who are you know close to the bottom when it comes to economic status are treated better by the free market. And what we're seeing, in my opinion is really countries starting to move more in that direction. As a great example with Brexit, you know, Brexit is only, what, like three weeks old? And already, already Great Britain is thinking like that. They're already lowering their corporate tax from 22% to 15%. They're already putting that out there. And that means that they're saying, listen, we want to compete. We're going to attract the best businesses here. And they're not going to only take, change their tax rates. They're going to change the regulations. They're going to make it easier for startups to compete because when they know they have to compete, they're going to give people every advantage they can. And giving people every advantage that you can to, be, to innovate and be great is the definition of a libertarian ideology. And is it true that they, they couldn't even do a lot of those things while remaining a part of the EU due to the regulations that all mm-hmm. these countries have to agree to together? So they don't want one country that has a lower tax rate than the other because they want to maintain – You know, it's, it's interesting because so many people say it's, it's a, this free market of EU, but it was only really a, an internal free market, whereas <laughs> forgetting about the fact that there's the rest of this world that became very closed off economically from the mm-hmm. EU. It, it Absolutely. It made it very difficult and for – for external trade, it made it very difficult for startups because it had these all these costs. You know, as a simple example, if I want to in America, if I want to make an electronic product, that's pretty complicated. But I just have to make it with one set of plugs, and I'm allowed to sell it. I'm also allowed to make it with a different set of, of plugs, you know, like the electric plugs, and sell it in another country if I want to. But I don't have to. But in the EU, they made it such that you couldn't. That you had to sell it with you know that full set, so that's adding a lot of cost. You know, on the electronic side, you know, I saw ridiculous articles saying that that one of the reasons that even though a professional camera, professional DSLR camera, can shoot video mechanically indefinitely, they're capped at thirty minutes because that's what the EU agreed on. So again, we're seeing just the EU getting in the way of innovation. We see the EU getting in the way of all kinds of of just progress and trade, and so that was. You know, I think that's really something that's going to set the British economy apart. They won't have that chain around their neck anymore. Another subject that you've provided a lot of commentary on recently are, you know, the, the recent shootings that we saw in Minnesota, uh, in Louisiana. Obviously, they're very charged for a number of reasons, race being one of them. But I think you do a really good job of trying to break down a lot of the root causes of, of this problem. Not only just the police shootings, but the the anger that built has built up in a lot of these communities where, where I think it's not really about this particular shooting here or there per se, but the, the shootings are a, a culmination of, of so much deeper anger built up over so many years. So could you speak on that for a minute? 
Absolutely. The goal, in my opinion, of a, of a police force is the way a police force would act if it was a private service. And to me, the way a police force would act as a private service would be if you had an issue, you would call them and they would take care of the issue. You know, that's how, you know, if you have a, a, security, a home security system, that's basically how they act. You have a problem, you call them. That's how the fire department acts. You have a problem, you call them. But the police has started to, in my opinion, really go into this very militarized way where they no longer look at themselves as people who are serving the community, but rather as people whose job it is to enforce laws in the community and force the community to follow these laws, many of which are invalid, many of which even the police believe are invalid but are just basically enforcing them you know, very aggressively almost against their own wills. And so that creates a situation in which the police are given just kind of an impossible sort of fool's error and you know, things like enforcing the war on drugs or, or whatever. They're unable to do it because it's kind of very difficult task to do in the first place. And rather than pulling away from the task, they have started getting more and more militarized. You, know, you have these SWAT team raids. You have police, police departments that have tanks. And that to me is, is, is the police and the government losing sight of the fact that they're actually there to serve the people. Not the other way around. The people aren't there to serve the government. The government's there to serve the people. And in some of these tragic attacks, you see what happens when that's taken too far. When you say police should enforce laws, not serve the people, then they start enforcing laws in ways that clearly don't serve anybody's interest. And, and it's really a situation that, that's, that's tragically gotten away from them. You know, I've met a lot of police officers, great people who really are trying to do good, and many of them are actually frustrated with the laws that they're expected to enforce. They're the first to say that these, some of these laws are silly. And we're not able to do real police work anymore because we have to spend all our time and resources on this nonsense. And so that's something that I really want to see change. One of the things that I plan to do if I get elected is sponsor legislation to totally end the war on drugs, completely eliminate it, make it a thing of the past, legalize everything, let the nonviolent drug offenders out of prison, and really just admit that that was a bad idea and just pull away from it right away. Well, that's excellent, Arvin, because I think there are a lot of issues that, you know, we might want to move in one direction on. And I, I think that there's a legitimacy for something you say, say, like, you know, when you suggest moving spending down to 9092 levels and to cut taxes down to there, at least start there because it's hard to do that overnight. But the war on drugs is one issue. We can end it overnight and there's no reason not to. All it is doing is infringing on the rights of other people. And it's a major, major contributor to all of this anger we see in these poor communities, in these minority communities between the war on drugs and the over policing, which are all very intertwined together. So mm -hmm. you know, I'm, I'm glad you're able to point that out to people because, you know, I want to take baby steps on some issues. I'm a pragmatist in some sense. The war on drugs, I'm no pragmatist. That's got to <laughs> that's got to end tomorrow if we can do it. So there's no re I'm glad that you want to introduce legislation to just completely end it, not kind of putz around the issue. Absolutely. Well, Arvin, it's been an absolute pleasure discussing this with you today, discussing your campaign and your ideas about liberty. Uh, if there's anything else you want to plug or promote, uh, as well as let people know about how they can get more involved with your Senate campaign and hey, with the Libertarian Party in general, feel free to give them the full roundabout and, and plug away. Absolutely. To learn more about my personal campaign, my Senate campaign, you go to votevora.com. My last name spelled V as in Victor, O-H-R-A. And to get involved in a campaign in your state, or even to run for office yourself. And you know, I hear a lot of people that are saying, well, I don't have a political science degree, I don't have a law degree. You know what, neither do I, it doesn't matter. 
if you're ready to do that, I would say really go to lp.org slash states. See how to run for office in your state. It's not as hard as you would think, and it brings far more benefits than anyone than you will ever guess, both personal benefits to you as you kind of grow as a person, but also just huge benefits to the libertarian movement as we see it spread, as it gets more media coverage and more attention. And if you like what you're hearing from Arvin, you can hear more of him by checking out Libertarians Working For You Radio. It's a radio, also a podcast show. Why don't you just tell people where they can find that? Absolutely. Just basically, if you Google Libertarians Working For You, we're the first thing that pops up, and you know all, all our old episodes are on there, and we go live each week, uh, Wednesdays at 2 p.m. Eastern. Arvin Vora, check out his Senate campaign. Best of luck, Arvin. All right. Thanks a lot for having me on, Mark. Well, guys, what do you think of Arvin Vora? You can't tell me here. You can't talk back to me because you're listening to a podcast. But you can tell me by joining the Lions of Liberty Forum. That's our private group on Facebook. You can find that by just typing Lions of Liberty Forum in your little search bar there. You can also find a link to it over in the show notes for today's program, which you can find over at lionsofliberty.com slash 232. We have a lot of great conversations over there in the Lions of Liberty Forum. It's really become a very vibrant group, and I invite you to come on and join the conversation because that's what we do here at Lions of Liberty. We have conversations about the ideas of liberty because that's really the only way we can advance them. By talking to people, by talking to each other, by talking to people out there, ooh, in the real world, scary. (laughs) But I think Arvind Vora is an excellent example of someone who can communicate ideas very well. Not everybody will agree with his conclusions about the ideas of liberty. Not everybody listening, especially people that are newer to these ideas, will think the idea of just dismantling the military is the way to go or taking away the Department of Education overnight. But the more you look into these issues, the more you might see that there's a lot of good points that people that call for these things do have. And I think that Arvind Vora is one of the more eloquent speakers out there who's able to convey what seems like many to be extreme ideas in a very reasonable, rational, and calm manner. And boy, oh boy, we need more of that in the liberty movement, my friends. And this movement is certainly growing just as this podcast is growing, and it's growing Thanks to you guys. Thanks to you guys telling your friends about this show. Thanks to you guys sharing it on your social media. We are rapidly moving away from a world where everybody gets their news fed to them from a few major news outlets that are, quote, well-respected. Now, people are getting their information from all over the place, including from podcasts. And we're working hard to make this podcast a go-to source for the ideas of liberty. Again, I can only do that with your help. So please, do us a favor. Share this show with your friends. Email it to your family members. Say, hey, you might like this podcast. Maybe give it a listen. I think you'll better see where I'm coming from if you hear some of these great conversations. You can also help this program by subscribing. Subscribing on iTunes, on Stitcher Radio, on Google Play, wherever it is you listen to this thing. And then going and leaving us a five-star rating and a great review on those platforms. That's the kind of thing that makes those algorithms get to work and pump our show up and put it in front of more people. So really, I can't stress highly enough how much I do appreciate you guys going out there and taking the time out of your day to help us spread these ideas. Now, this coming Wednesday... We're going to do it again. We're going to have another one of our oh-so-fun roundtables where I'm going to bring in a few of my fellow Lions of Liberty Pride to discuss some current events, some happenings in the world, whatever happens to come up on our minds. So tune in this coming Wednesday. And until then, live long and live free.